0: I've been married for just over two months, and it is safe to say at this point that the honeymoon is not exactly the norm of married life. Um, by the Lord's grace, Ano and I got married on July 14th in Minnesota, praise his name. Uh, thank you, Ben Wilson, for doing that. Ben Wilson fought through sickness and coming back from Kenya to marry us. So anyway, that's just a public thank you for suffering through that for us. I'm grateful. So yeah, yes, thank you. I got to be married because of it. So thank you. Seriously. Um, the day after, uh, Anna and I got to fly to Florida, just outside the Pensacola area, and we got to spend ten days on a beachfront condo. Um, it is as nice as it sounds. And for 10 days, the hardest decisions that we had to work through were what time we wanted to go down to the beach and where we wanted to go for dinner. So it's pretty safe to say we were living the good life. Um, I'm sure most of y'all married folk can relate to this too, but like you just wake up on your honeymoon and it's just, it's just this surreal bliss. Like you just can't wait to wake up and like serve the other and speak life into them or when they do anything remotely wrong, you're just so quick to say like, that's okay, like, how would you ever irritate me? Like, why would I ever be annoyed or bothered by something you could do? You know, just like, and for 10 days, it's just like this. It's just kind of this surreal, out-of-body experience. And, uh, and then we came home, and then we came home, and it was three, maybe four hours before we were having a disagreement about whether one is required by U.S. law to close the shower curtain upon exiting the shower. Um, And in case you're wondering, you are required to do that, so that's your free legal advice for the day. Um, But as silly and as mundane of an example as that is, it was astonishing how quickly the honeymoon glow turned into annoyed grunts about leaving the shower curtain open. And I think it's safe to say that when you find yourself in a disagreement about the shower curtain, the honeymoon is over. I'm guessing that when most of us in here came to know Christ as our Savior, that there was almost a spiritual honeymoon of sorts, where when we first came to know him, being a Christian was the most blissful, easy thing in the world. Or maybe if you didn't have a kind of dramatic life conversion moment and you like me or someone who grew up in the church and you can't exactly pinpoint your conversion maybe you know what youth pastors are fond of calling a spiritual high where you go to some camp or some retreat and man the lord just meets with you in a very real way like his presence is sweet there and then you go back and the next day at school you are you are determined to have your whole school like evangelized by lunch you know you're going to make disciples in the afternoon and then when the school bell rings you're going to have a great commission just send them out to the ends of the earth You know, like that hasn't happened for anyone yet, but you know, that's what we go in thinking. And whichever camp you fall into, whether you kind of had a later in life conversion or you've grown up in the church, all of us can think back to almost a spiritual honeymoon that we had with the Lord, where his presence was not far from us, that intimacy with him was not hard, that we were hungry for his word and we were excited for times that we could spend alone in prayer and for some of us this morning maybe we we think back to those times in our life and there's almost this like nostalgia like we like we long to go back to the glory days or maybe for others of us when we think back to those times in our life there's real discouragement and we're disheartened because maybe this christian life hasn't turned out the way we thought it would that walking with Jesus has been a lot harder than we anticipated. So what do we do when we find ourselves here? What do we do when we find ourselves wishing to return to the honeymoon? Because the honeymoon is over. Now what? If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, meet me in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Again, that is 2 Timothy chapter 4. As y'all are probably familiar with at this point and going through 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is the Apostle Paul's letter to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy's been a pastor down in Ephesus for a while and is encountering hardship and Frankly, he's discouraged, and he's been disillusioned about um, the Christian life and ministry, and Paul, his kind of spiritual mentor in the faith, is writing this letter to encourage him. And as Lance preached on last week, Paul is in the middle of his final charge to Timothy. And last week, Lance talked about how his charge begins with an earnest petition to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to make the good news of Jesus known. But today, our, our text is still, in finals char- is still in Paul's final charge, but it's a little different. And so hang with me here. The interpretive key, kind of a, a key to understanding our text today, is that Paul is going to reflect on his own experience for the purpose of encouraging Timothy. So Paul is going to shift from giving direct imperatives to talking about his own experience and his own life for the purpose of encouraging Timothy. And so we're going to be in verses 6 through 8 today, but go ahead and read with me beginning in verse 5 so you can get a feel for the flip and the context that Paul makes in verse 6. So 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. These are familiar verses to us, um, especially verse seven about finishing the race. Maybe you've seen that on like the back of a Christian 5K T-shirt. You know, they hand that to you after you finish, like I have finished the race. Um, if that's not a thing, you have my permission to steal that idea. Others will be blessed by it. All right, so just you can make that a thing. Um, but Paul Paul begins this section in verse six with kind of intense language. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. So him saying this should make us ask a couple of things. One, what is a drink offering? And two, why does Paul say he is one? Well, drink offerings are kind of the stealthiest of all the offerings in the Old Testament, meaning that they kind of hide in plain sight and they're easy to miss, Drink offerings were typically accompanied by other offerings. If the priest was sacrificing a bull or a calf or maybe the first fruit of a harvest, a drink offering was typically a cup of wine that was poured out either on the sacrificed animal or next to it, and it was meant to kind of symbolize a wholeness to the offering. Now, if a priest was offering um, a bull and maybe the first fruit of a crop, the last thing he would do would be to pour out this cup of wine, And offer it to the Lord. And it was kind of saying, like, Lord, here's everything. Like, every last drop of ourselves, here we are. And Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. So what he means here is he's saying, like, every last drop of myself is being given to the gospel, is being given to furthering the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Paul doesn't know any compromises. Like, he is giving all of himself to this. His whole ministry, his whole apostleship, every bit of his sermon and private life, he's being poured out as a drink offering. The next phrase says that the time of my departure has come. And so it might be easy to think about, you know, Paul as a drink offering is maybe he's talking about his death. Maybe he's saying that his death is somehow being offered to God. And I think, I want you all to hang with me here because this is going to have bearing on our whole text because I want us to remember the context of 2 Timothy. And so to do that, I want to read a few verses. Drop your eye down to verse 9. This is Paul talking to Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon. All right, so Paul expects to see Timothy again. Verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. All right, I read those verses to point out that it can be tempting to read our passage and think of Paul as sort of writing his last will and testament. Like, my departures come, like the guy who's about to behead me is at the door, like I'm this drink offering to the Lord, like, no. Like, Paul expects to see Timothy again. He wants Timothy to bring Mark with him so they can— be really useful for ministry. So the point of this passage is not that Paul's about to die and he's being poured out as some offering. The point is that he's trying to encourage Timothy. That's the point of this letter. So when Paul says that he's finished the race or kept the faith, like the way that gets brought out in English makes us feel like that's a done deal, like he's done, like he's crossed the finish line and now he's, he's kind of chilling. But the context of 2 Timothy doesn't let us think that. Paul is near the end of his life, but he's still fighting. He might be in the home stretch of the race, but he's still running the race. He's near to the end, but he's still going. And so in verse 6, he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. My whole life is being given to the Lord and furthering his gospel. And the time of my departure has come. Meaning like the time of my departure is near. Paul knows that he's in the last round of the fight but he expects more ministry for himself. Read with me in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. These are um, some of the more, uh, one of the most uh, maybe iconic verses in the New Testament. Um, I like to describe this verse as Paul's dramatic portrayal of his situation of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Like, it sounds a little dramatic. Um, Like, I don't know, when was, like, the last time in your ethos community when you're, like, going around, checking up on people, and someone's like, man, Satan, like, really had me down this week, but I gave him, like, a Holy Spirit punch back, and then, like, I just came out victorious. You know, like, I'm fighting the good fight this week. Like, that's just, like, not how we talk. It's not how we think. But, like, for Paul, like, he's pretty caught up in this thing. Like, he's pretty sold out. He's like, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I'm keeping the faith. And so when he says, I'm fighting the good fight. I fought the good fight. He's saying, like, I'm giving myself to, like, the best possible cause. Like, I'm about furthering the most important thing in the world, and that's the kingdom of God. We read in Acts that Paul's ministry regularly had opposition, like, crazy stuff, like, girls that were telling fortunes, getting demons cast out and like a whole city, like having this mob about Paul's ministry. And yet Paul just fights back with faithfulness. Paul is someone who fights the good fight. You can't pin him down. He says, I have finished the race. In Act 20, we read that Paul says the purpose of his life is to fulfill the course of ministry that the Lord has set out for him that he views himself being given a specific task at a specific time for these people as the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's about finishing the race that's set before him. He realizes there's been a charge entrusted to him. And then he kind of breaks away from the athletic metaphors and says, I have kept the faith. And what he means here is that he is he's preserving the pure gospel, like true doctrine as Lance preached on last week like there were people that Timothy had to keep an eye out that were wanting to spread false teaching and people would be interested in them because they had itching ears for error but Paul says not me not me i've i've kept the faith like i am keeping the gospel as was delivered to me pure and so Paul is dramatically portraying his own experience trying to get Timothy to do something In case you couldn't tell by looking at me, I'm not exactly the most chiseled or built guy there is. Um, Like, Tommy Doles and I have very different builds, and, like, that's okay, Tommy, I'm going to boast in my weakness, bro, so it's fine, okay? (laughs) Um, But I I, I point that out to say that in high school, I wasn't really cut out for most sports, so I ended up on the cross-country team. Um, Because when you go to a Texas 5A high school and you're not playing football, you have, you have two options. One, just give up on life now. Just like call it quits, like you're done, you probably won't amount to much. So just like kind of drop out of school, just like give up now. Or the second option, run cross country. So that's what I did. I chose the latter portion. I wasn't ready to give up yet. Um, and in cross country, I discovered that we, uh, our heroes are a little harder to find. Like if you're, if you're playing football, like you can do Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, like it's easy to find a hero to look up to. But when you're on the cross country team, man, you're fighting for scraps. All right. You, you got to like claim your guy. Okay. And there was one name that kept popping up in my coaches like pre-race speeches. And that was the name Steve Prefontaine. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Steve Prefontaine. Okay, good amount of you. More than I thought. Uh, Moses, go ahead and throw the picture up. This is Steve Prefontaine. Uh, in case you couldn't tell by looking at him, he was big in the 60s and 70s. He's got that cool, like, mustache and like shaggy hair look going for him. Uh, Steve Prefontaine was the real deal. Um, let me throw your st- throw some statistics your way so you can be impressed. Um, His junior and senior year of high school, he never lost a race. Just never lost one. At the University of Oregon, he was a seven-time national champion when you combine his cross country and track events. At the University of Oregon, he never lost a race over a mile. All right, so two mile on the track, 5K, 10K, 15K, anything over a mile, the four years he was there, he won. It's pretty legit. His 1972 Olympic time trial record for the 5K stood until 2012 when some punk broke it by two-tenths of a second. So it doesn't even count. All right? So, like this, guy, like, this guy is the real deal. And what made people drawn to Steve Prefontaine, because he was, like, selling out University of Oregon track meets. Like, when was the last time any track meet has ever been sold out? Like, has that ever happened? And this was in the 70s. Like this guy, what made him like people drawn to him was not only did he just dominate, but like he was talking the talk. Like like he knew he was good and he was gonna like let people know. So I I have some quotes for you to read, and they're just kind of epic. They're really inspiring. So read this. He says, "To give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift." That's that should be like a proverb or something. All right, that's good. He said, "Somebody may beat me, but they're going to have to bleed to do it." It's kind of epic and a threat. He says, I'm going to work so that it's a pure guts race at the end, and if it is, I am the only one who can win it. All right, so brother had pride. It's good. A race is a work of art that people can look at and be affected in as many ways as they are capable of understanding. All right, he's saying, like, what I'm doing is so epic that whatever your small mind gets out of it, like, more power to you. But this is like an epic thing going on here, all right? So this is like a sports media person's dream, a quotable superstar. And Steve Prefontaine, along with a few other runners who were big at the time, one of them was a marathoner and then a few other Olympians, they helped spark what's known as the running boom of the 1970s. And if you're thinking I'm just making that up, it has a Wikipedia page, so who's making stuff up now, okay? So, this is legit. The running boom of the 1970s. In the 1970s and 80s, this is when running sort of took off. When running shoe companies started making a lot more running shoes, and it's estimated that over 20 million Americans in the 1970s and 80s took up running for some form of recreation or fitness. Like before the 70s and 80s, it would have been the most uncommon thing in the world to like see someone running for pleasure through your neighborhood. That just was not a thing then. This is when running shoe companies were taking off, and it's because of people like Steve Prefontaine, who dominated the event and were quotable. Like they talked in an epic way. And it made millions of Americans think, like, huh, maybe I could run. Maybe if I buy Nikes, I'll be like Steve Prefontaine. This is what Paul wants us to feel. In talking about his own life, and talking about his faithfulness, he wants there to be kind of that something in us being like, yeah, like, I could do that. Like, I could do that. Like, that could be for me. Paul wants us to fulfill and fight for the faithfulness the Lord has called us to. Paul talks about his own race that the Lord has given him to make us realize that we've been given one too. In Ephesians, it actually says that it's the pastor's job to equip the saints for the work of ministry. All of us have some ministry, some task of faithfulness that we're called to fulfill. And Paul's dramatic portrayal here is meant to kind of shock us out of discouragement. It's meant to provoke something in us, being like, yeah, I could do that too. Like, I want to run my race well. I want to fight that fight with him. That is what Paul wants us to feel when we read this. And let this be an encouragement to y'all. Like, Paul is talking about his own faithfulness to try to compel Timothy to do something. Like, are other people compelled to be faithful by watching your life? Like, do other people watch you in your day in and day out life? And is there something compelling them? Saying, like, I want to be faithful like that. I want to be generous like that. I want to love other people like that person loves them. Do you have a faithfulness that people feel compelled by? Fulfill and fight for the faithfulness the Lord has called you to. Let's return to our text. Read with me in verse 8. Henceforth a great word, probably means something like finally or at the conclusion of. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul says there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me. And he's not the only New Testament writer to talk about a crown. Uh, Peter and James as well mentioned that there is a crown awaiting the faithful ones. And what's good to note in this text is that Paul says the reward, what what he's getting at for us, is that he's saying the reward for my faithfulness in this life awaits me in the next. Paul is not about finding some reward for his faithfulness, for his hard work for the gospel in this life. All right? He's not saying, if I do X, Y, Z, then the Lord tomorrow will give me this. He's saying, like, I'm going to pour myself out to the Lord now because in the next like, there's something coming for me. Like, That's where my reward is. That's where my treasure is. And he says that Jesus will give it to him on that day, meaning the day when Jesus returns in judgment to judge the world. That Paul sees the Christ's return in judgment as a great source of hope for him. And as Lance reminded us last week, like, the, the return of Christ is something we should long for. Because as Lance said, he said, I don't know about y'all, but I see a lot of injustice in my world. Like, reading through the news this past week or any week, like, hurt and pain is evident and when we read those stories, there should always be kind of this discontentedness in us about the way things are. We should always find ourselves longing for something more. And that's found in the return of Christ. The last phrase of this verse is really interesting. Read read it with me again. He says, Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Okay, so his appearing here is talking about the appearing of Christ when he returns to judge the world. And that's kind of a weird verb to talk about with, like those who have loved his appearing. What does it mean to love the appearing of Christ? I think it's what we just talked about. It is to long for the return in the day when Jesus makes all of this right when he wipes every tear from our eyes, like that's what we have to look forward to in this appearing. It's probably something similar that the author of Hebrews has in mind in Hebrews 9, when he says that Jesus will return to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Like, is there an eagerness in us? Like, we're called to live leaning forward in anticipation of Christ's returning. Um, Since we're at church, I think it's safe to assume that most of us are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, If you're not, like if you've never read any of the books or seen any of the movies, like you have my permission to just leave the service right now, go home, read one of the books, watch the movies. It'll be the most edifying thing you do this week. Okay, so you have my full permission for this. And I want to think for a little bit about the story: the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Our friends Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. When the four siblings enter into Narnia, they find Narnia under the rule of the white witch. And the white witch has cast a curse on the land so that it somehow manages to be always winter, but never Christmas, which at times I feel like describes Chicago. Always winter, but never Christmas, right? Can I get an amen, someone? Thank you. Yeah, that's good. So they enter, and they find the land under the curse of the white witch. And the white witch, not only has she made it so that it's always winter, but never Christmas. Also, like, all the creatures live in terror of her, or they serve her as her servant. And anyone who defies her gets turned to stone. All right, so you don't want to mess, you don't want to mess with this lady. And she has made it known that if anyone finds a human in Narnia, that they're to report her, them to her immediately, all right? She is not like other humans. Um, probably because uh, when these four siblings enter Narnia, it's a little scandalous um, because there's a well-known prophecy that two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve will one day reign in Narnia and overturn the White Witch, that they will set up a reign of justice and peace. So the White Witch makes it known to all the creatures that if they find a human, come to her at once, turn them in. But when the four siblings enter Narnia, they don't find the creatures hesitant to help them. I mean, like, who doesn't love Mr. Tumnus, right, the fawn? He's, like, low-key the hero of the whole thing. Like, we love Mr. Tumnus. He, like, welcomes Lucy in. He gets her to go back and bring her siblings. Like, he's a helpful guy. And when all four of them come in, they meet a beaver, who is appropriately named Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver brings them in to his home with Mrs. Beaver, And they give them great hospitality, they give them a place to sleep, they fill them with a warm meal, and then all of a sudden, like, it kind of clicks in Mr. Beaver's mind, like, like, I should get these kids to Aslan. This Beaver has never seen Aslan, but there's been a rumor going around that Aslan's getting an army ready to fight the White Witch. So Mr. Beaver leaves the comfort of his home and brings the four siblings to Aslan. And as you know, I don't want to give away too many details, but they have some close calls, some memorable moments along the way. But at some point, you've got to wonder, like, what on earth compels Mr. Beaver to risk his life helping four kids across Narnia to help him go to some line that he's never seen, that it's only rumored about? What is it that like compels him to go? Because it's rumored that even some of the trees are on her side. The White Witch dominates this land. Why would he try to defy her? And I think it's because Mr. Beaver had a vision of what Narnia could be. Mr. Beaver realized that if he is successful in his journey in getting these kids to Aslan, that the White Witch's reign would end. That Narnia would be set up to its former glory. Right? Because no creature, no beaver is going to help four kids across all of Narnia without some compelling vision. Right? There was something compelling him. Think about the way you're supposed to live in this world like Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Live in the world as those in love with what it will be. And obviously, this is, kind of a, this is kind of a fine line for us because we want to be optimistic for the world, but we do not want to be naive. We do not want to be a naive people because as the church, we're called to expose works of darkness that we're not supposed to let hurt and just kind of continue to fester us. We're supposed to push back what's dark in the world and fight against that. But at the same time, We can't give ourselves over to this doom and gloom Christianity where everything's terrible and it's only going to get worse, like somehow it's always Good Friday and never Easter. We're an optimistic people. We are not doom and gloom, because to be doom and gloom is to dangerously underplay the reality that Jesus really is Lord over all things, and he is building his church. We're an optimistic people because Jesus is risen from the dead and sitting at his father's right hand, but we are not naive because we know he was crucified to get there. Live in the world as those in love with what it will be. We're an optimistic people. We have a hope, but we are not naive. In the Christian life, Most of us can think back to spiritual honeymoons. And we find ourselves longing for those days to return, where the intimacy and joy of the Lord came easy to us. But the Holy Spirit is not silent to us this morning. Because he is saying, there is something you are called to. There's a faithfulness. There's a race that you've been called to run. No one else can run yours for you. No one else can fight your fight. You've been called to something. And we've been given a hope, a hope that allows us to be optimistic. That we can live in the world as those in love with what it will be. But if you allow me to speak a little more boldly and directly now, the honeymoon is over, and that's a good thing. Because there is only a greater intimacy, a greater joy in the Lord that's available to you right now. Hear me, y'all. Like any good marriage, the best intimacy comes later and not at the beginning. That a lot of us, when we came to know Christ as Savior, the beginning was easy. That his presence was easy to find. It was not far from us. We were quick to be filled with joy. There was kind of like this vibrancy about our faith. But hear me, God is using every part of your life, every sorrow, every long and monotonous week, every bit of trial and suffering to form you into needing and wanting more of him. Because you, after you've been a Christian for a year, two years, ten years, you know God's character and heart better than you did when you were first a Christian. You have seen his faithfulness at work in your life. He's been with you as you've been weeping. You know God's heart so much better now than you did when you were first a believer. So there's only greater intimacy available to you with a little work, a little pursuit of him. He is not far from any of us. He's near and he's ready. So my plea with y'all this morning is not that you would think back to those spiritual honeymoon days that you've had in your life and feel like you're missing out right now. Because there is only something better for you. Jesus Christ is risen, he's alive, he is at work in the world, and we can be an optimistic people because we know he's coming back and he's going to make all this right again. But we're not naive about it. Take heart that your present and your future are caught up in God's love. Your present and your future are caught up in God's love. I've said this to y'all before, but I think it bears repeating right now. Do not associate how you feel about yourself with how God feels about you. God's affection for you is unchanging, it is unwavering, and it is true. And he's calling you to join him in his work in the world. So the honeymoon is over, but we've been given a race to run. We've been given a fight to fight and a faith to keep. The honeymoon is over, but we have a better hope. We have a greater experience with the Lord coming. The honeymoon is over, and that's good news. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your unchanging and steady love for us. Father, I ask now that you would turn our hearts to be worshipful toward you in this time. Lord, would we sing with joy and faith now, and would we cling to your promises and your presence with us? Spirit, we need you for this task. We cannot do this alone. Jesus, you said, apart from you, we can do nothing. So Jesus, we ask for your help and your nearness to us. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you're in charge and that one day you'll call us home to be with you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.